Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The race is on, and as Daniel Ricciardo insists he won't walk away, McLaren gives Colton Herr to his first F1 test and brings Alex Palau into its burgeoning driver development ranks. So what's really going on with McLaren's 2023 plans, and why is Ricciardo getting so punchy with his public comments? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer these questions and many more are Scott Mitchell and Ben Anderson. Well, it's been a while since we've had a podcast debutant, so we have to start with you, Ben Anderson. Explain yourself. What are you doing here? <laughs> it's a very good question, Ed. Uh, I think basically you lot thought you'd got rid of me and it's been many years, but I've managed to catch up with you and return to make your lives hell once again. A ghost from a past life. That's probably the best way to <laughs> look at you. But for those who don't know Ben Anderson, which will be most of you probably, because I don't think many have heard of him, but he uh, has, <laughs> <laughs> has, a, has a long history as a Formula One journalist uh, and an editor as well. And now he's working with us at the race. So he knows what he's talking about when it comes to Formula One. So that means we've now got one person that knows what they're talking about. That's good news for Scott Mitchell. I'm not going to ask you how you're doing, since not for the first time you're joining us for a podcast while battling COVID, but at least you have I've got something to complain about. No, I don't think that's very fair. Um, no, I'm uh, I'm I'm in I'm in good spirits. It's not uh, it's not ideal to 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 have this, but it's come at a decent time in terms of in this run of mad races through July. At least I've managed to get it in the one window that actually exists in the month to have a few days with COVID and then recover to to come back. So hopefully I'll be back in in the paddock for the French Grand Prix, but obviously I need to make sure I have no symptoms and uh, test negative and, and, and all that jazz. But it's all good. The uh, The only downside is this isn't exactly how I wanted to uh, spend my 30th birthday, but it's okay because recording this podcast with you two lovely gentlemen more than makes up for it. Happy birthday, Scott. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> It's at this point that we'll reveal the secret present we've got you that I didn't think to do. So, uh, yeah, we'll just we'll just imagine we've we've done lots of good things to mark your birthday. But what better way to celebrate a landmark birthday than talking about Formula One? So let's just pile into it because this Daniel Ricciardo story is just not going away, is it? He's usually really relaxed about any stories swirling around about him. So it was quite unusual to see him release that statement last week, reiterating his commitment to McLaren for 2023. I might as well read it out so you know what he's been saying. This was released on social media and he said, There have been a lot of rumours around my future in Formula One, but I want you to hear it from me. I am committed to McLaren until the end of next year and I'm not walking away from the sport. I appreciate it hasn't always been easy, but who wants easy? I'm working my ass off with a team to make improvements and get the car right and back to the front where it belongs. I still want this more than ever. See you in Le Castellet. So Scott, Simple enough. Ricardo committed for 2023. Nothing to see here, right? Uh, that's one interpretation, but I think there are a, there are a couple. I mean, I, I if you if you want to take him at face value, if you don't want to be cynical about it, then then it is possible that that's exactly 
the situation. What Ricardo said there is basically what's going on. He's done some soul searching or he's checked his bank balance and he's decided that, yeah, he either wants to fight back next year or he's happy to ride this through to the end, whether it's sporting or financial motivations. He is here to stay with McLaren in Formula One in 2023 that that is a valid interpretation that that's taking him at his word but the other side of it and this is kind of where I'm leaning at the moment is we talked about this I'm sure on a previous podcast or when we've talked about Daniel's situation you'll if you're listening to this you might remember that there were some comments from Zach Brown uh, around the Monaco Grand Prix weekend where he mentioned mechanisms in which that Ricardo and McLaren are not committed to one another and we found out after that that what that was a reference to is an option on Ricardo's side to end the contract early so he can walk away before the end of 2023 if I believe McLaren doesn't meet a certain standard of performance but there's some wiggle room there because if McLaren thinks that the best thing to do is for Ricardo to leave and Daniel says I actually want to exercise this option McLaren can be like oh well we can take that to to mean whatever you want it to mean if that means you can walk away so the point is it's Daniel's the one with the the option to leave and I wonder if this is him basically setting out his position and saying no I don't want to leave i.e it is not going to be my choice to exercise the option in my contract and that then basically says to McLaren if you want to get rid of me you need to make me an offer that's actually worthwhile. So there could be an element of gamesmanship here. I don't think it's necessarily Ricardo being overly difficult and a sign of uh, you know a collapse in their relationship. We can talk about this in a little bit. That they 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 are quite strong, I think, behind the scenes still and do want to work together. But it's just I think a fairly sensible contractual play from Ricardo while all of this stuff is swirling around to get his position out there and make it very clear to McLaren that this is where he stands at the moment. Ben, what do you make of the statement? Do you think it's just an innocuous one, just, oh, people are saying things, I'm going to say this, or do you think it is more strategic? Yeah, I I tend to agree with Scott's position there, that it just sets Ricardo's stool out contractually. Um, I wrote a column, obviously, for the race website, um, arguing that they should see it through to the end of 2023. And a big part of that argument was essentially Ricardo daring McLaren to sack him. Uh, clearly, McLaren isn't happy with his level of performance and neither is he. It's fallen far below expectations, but there are reasons for that. Um, I don't think Ricardo's become a bad driver overnight. You know, he's been very competitive throughout his career against some very strong teammates. It's not going well for him at the moment. But the car has also been quite disappointing this season. Uh, and I think it's perhaps a little bit risky to just hang him out to dry before you kind of resolve those problems. Um, Ricardo probably doesn't really have any better options himself. So he's better off saying to McLaren, look, I'm going to stick this out next year anyway. And if you want to get rid of me still, you're going to have to pay me. That's fine. But also from McLaren's side, how do they engineer those better options if they exist? into the seat. I don't really see where they come from. There's been a lot of talk about Oscar Piastri, but he's contracted to a a rival manufacturer team, hot property, not someone they're going to want to lose easily. Does McLaren really want to take a driver on loan? Doesn't seem like a very good long-term bet for them. Uh, Obviously, they've been looking at um, some US drivers from IndyCar. Uh, 
some questions there about you know whether they're ready to go or not so i think it just makes sense to kind of level things out sort the car out as priority number one if you can give ricardo a bit more of what he likes from the setup point of view he could probably improve quite substantially next year and then by this time next year the driver market should open up a bit more and maybe McLaren will have some better options to to take things forward if Ricardo still isn't up to scratch. Obviously, Scott, looking at the contract, they're spending a lot of money on Ricardo. If this is like a normal contract, it's likely that the third year will be slightly higher paid than the previous two years. Usually, like when people talk about, say, a 21 million contract, just to pull a number out of midair because it divides up nicely, and that's a three-year deal, normally it'll be 6 million, 7 million, 8 million. So there's kind of a loyalty bonus um, almost engineered into it. They tend to be backloaded. So there's probably a lot of money being spent on Ricardo next year if he does stay with McLaren. So from McLaren's perspective, do you think that gives them the leeway to maybe try and do a, do some kind of negotiation because they're going to spend so much on him, they can afford to pay him partially and take a cheap option and still be quids in, they might think. Yeah, if that's what McLaren wants to do and decides it, it's for the best, I think there's a quite a neat solution you've outlined there I mean it it does depend on it does depend on what Ricardo's form I think over the next couple of races before the summer break in particular is like Um, I'd be very surprised if they want this to drag on into the second half of the season I think you want it resolved one way or the other absolutely as soon as possible Um, the reason I think McLaren would go down this route if Ricardo was open to it is that as Ben mentioned it has fallen below expectations on both sides. You've mentioned the money that Ricardo will be earning. They're not paying Ricardo to be even really on Lando's level. The amount of money they'll be paying him, they'll be paying him to be the team leader. The idea was that Lando would really be able to to learn from him, not for Daniel to be playing catch up. Um, so with the amount of money that they're spending on Daniel, they'd be able, if they paid him. They paid him half his salary next year not to drive for them. They could probably afford to pay him even more than that as a percentage, and then still make a net saving overall. If you were able to, if you were able to get hypothetically a Piastri or someone like Alex Albon, for example, you're not going to be paying them even half what you were paying Ricardo. So you, in that situation, you're either going to be, you know net year on year spending the same amount of money but ideally be in a better position or you're going to be saving that money so that's why I think it will appeal on McLaren's side but I do want to stress that I the ideal scenario for both is that it doesn't end early and it doesn't need to end early everything I've seen myself in terms of their body language towards one another at the track the stories that I've heard from each party in terms of what it's like behind the scenes, there's not been a fallout between Ricardo and, and and the team. McLaren's not trying to stitch Ricardo up. There's not really any of the usual signs of like briefing against him and, and, and that kind of thing. On the record stuff, especially, they've been really supportive of him. Daniel's attitude has apparently been absolutely first class as well. He He has been such a professional, but behind the scenes and... He's not kicking up a stink about Lando or, or anything like that. So it's such a bizarre situation in, in in that there's been such a decline on the sporting side versus expectations. I don't really think Ricardo started off mega and has just suddenly gone to crap on track or anything like that. But it's just it, it's just purely because it's not working the way they want on the sporting side. They're now having to consider all these other things that 
if it came down to just purely how they work together, I don't think there'd be an issue with Ricardo staying at McLaren beyond this season. But it's just not as simple as that. It's interesting as well to note that, as you say, Ricardo has behaved absolutely correctly in the way he's conducted himself and he's really trying. But one interesting thing, Ben, is in recent races, even though there was that little bit of an upturn for a few weekends, he's not always been able to give good, compelling answers for why he's struggling. And we've seen this kind of running out of ideas almost element to it. So that that's the thing that's slightly concerning, whether he's getting a little bit lost, shall we say, because particularly last year, there was a good direction of travel and it kind of all made sense. He was understanding more about himself as a driver, etc. New car this year, the hope things would be better, but but they haven't been. So from a team's perspective, they've got to be concerned about that aspect of things, haven't they? Yeah, massively so. Um, I mean, that's the biggest problem. Like none of None of this argument is really about excusing Ricardo's lack of performance, but there's so many variables at play. Uh, it is interesting that he seemed to be on a decent trajectory, although probably behind the curve even before the rules changed. Obviously, he won at Monza last year, but it was kind of against the run of play and Norris was still the stronger driver anyway, despite being less experienced. But of course, within McLaren and how that team operates, you know, Lando's grown up with them. He knows McLaren inside out. I think he's more familiar with the quirks of how that team operates and particularly the cars they've produced. Perhaps that's caught Ricardo by surprise in the first instance. And then you would have thought the major rule shift would have been a complete reset. And obviously in certain aspects it has been, but McLaren has taken a relative dip competitively and seems to be a little bit more lost overall than it was before. There was quite a clear progression for that team under Andrea Seidel and um, Zach. And that's, that's not apparent this year. So for a driver who's maybe not totally comfortable in his surroundings to then have this extra spanner thrown in the works makes Ricardo's position more difficult, makes it harder for him to get maybe what he needs. What you really need to see is kind of some consistency in terms of understanding where the car is and, and whether what's lacking for him can be achieved in a relatively straightforward way. At Renault, I mean, he, he he had some challenges there early on and then they managed to make that massive setup break for, I think it was the the anniversary Grand Prix at Silverstone in 2020. Um, and Ricardo could start, start to feel the car making more sense. He's particularly sensitive, I think, on the exit of corners and feeling like the, the rear is stable enough um, when he applies the throttle to give him the confidence um, and then he was he was magnificent for that team, and that wasn't so long ago. Um, but at that stage, you know, he was the more experienced driver. Um, the team was maybe a bit more around him. Uh, I think the situation at McLaren is slightly different, um, but nevertheless, he he's got to find a way to turn it around. Um, I feel like he probably should just be given a bit more time because McLaren, as I say, need to sort out their own problems. But you know, ultimately, it's not a, a good look if. The team is accepting what Scott has been saying is slightly briefing against one of its drivers or at least, you know, doing nothing to diffuse the rumour mill around that seat. And the driver feels compelled to come out publicly and say, look, I'm staying put, what whatever happens, and if you if you want to get rid of me, rid of me, you're gonna to have to pay me or or bin me off. I mean, that doesn't suggest harmony. Um, so they certainly need to have a, a pretty frank discussion, I think, about what they do over the second half of the season. Yeah, I think it's very much that McLaren has reached the point where it's in the team's interest 
to let it be known that it's open to Ricardo making the decision to leave, if that <laughs> makes sense. Like the, 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 the briefing points is, is very important because, um, every, every team, I think at, at some point during the season has a little bit of, uh, something bad to say about one of their drivers and they have, they try and find a sort of gentle way of, of, of doing it. The exceptions are probably Mercedes with Lewis and um, Red Bull with Max, just because they're the absolute star, you know, star drivers and they don't even want to be seen to be negative in any way on or on or off the record with, with McLaren and Ricardo. Um, as I say, Seidel, Seidel, I think has been, almost perfect with how he has sort of backed his driver and when there has been stuff obviously the last few days may be a little bit different but when there has been stuff before this year um he has wanted to reiterate that the contract is in place next year and their priority is making it work and on the weekend in Austria he was very keen to take the blame away from Ricardo and put it on the team for messing up his fp1 basically because he had a drs problem there and all the emphasis there was on well how can we expect daniel to perform well if we don't give him a car blah 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 the one who i think has slipped up on the mclaren side from time to time is zach because zach is very much more of a says what he thinks a bit more of an open book with that kind of thing and it was his comments around monaco that really started to trigger some speculation about about Daniel and obviously behind the scenes they'll be saying stuff uh, that's slightly different to what they're saying in public absolutely um I think there is definitely an element of uh tension that has creeped into I think probably the handling of the relationship rather than the relationship itself if that makes sense um and it'll be interesting to know which obviously we don't exactly where Daniel's uh, allegiances lie within McLaren, if anywhere. You know, does he have a slightly different relationship with Andreas, for example, to Zach? You know, Zach's not there all the time. Zach's the one who said the most problematic comments, and Zach's ultimately the guy who has the final say. Like, if McLaren were going to sign off a massive payoff for Daniel, it's it's Zach, isn't it? Not not Andreas, who has the the ultimate power there. So. It's very interesting. I would. Uh, I. I still. Th- I still believe that there is a good relationship between Daniel and the McLaren F1 team. Maybe there's a, an extra amount of tension or pressure building b- between certain individuals. As I recall, Cider uh, was one of the big attractions for Ricardo signing for that team. I think so. Taking that at face value, I mean, he he went on record at the time saying that he had a lot of respect for for Andreas had done in motorsport. So. I'd imagine as a starting point, his relationship with the, as you say, Scott, the immediate F1 team is probably a little bit more secure or positive than his relationship with the wider McLaren commercial structure. It's also worth remembering that it was Ricardo who kind of started the rumour mill running in Monaco with what he said after the race. So that was his own little uh, little mistake, shall we say, when he said they had to have some conversations about next year, having previously said it was rock solid three years. So that maybe opened the door to McLaren making a few more comments. But it's it's a funny situation, though, because for McLaren, the, the, the question, given there's no brilliant alternative, if there was some absolutely brilliant driver they could sign, plug them in, I don't know, Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen or Charlotte or something, then you'd say, yeah, it makes sense to do it. So for me, this comes down to a question of 
whether just this Ricardo thing is not showing signs of getting to a, a recovery point and it just feels like something they just need to say, right, this isn't working, it's not going to work, we've just got to move on from it, or whether they think there's still a way through it. And that's, that's the interesting thing, though, isn't it, Ben? Because he's had something like 33 races with McLaren, two different cars. Last year, I'd say the limitations were much more car-specific. This year, yeah, the McLaren's not a great car, but also generically, and I asked Ricardo about this a few races ago, the characteristics of the cars as they are, greater understeer balance on the on the front tyres. It's harder to get aero load and shift your aero centre of pressure forward at corner entries to get the car rotated and then get yourself in that position where at corner exit, you're not quite as traction limited as he is sometimes in, in longer corners. So you could argue that the Ricardo that was absolutely on top of the, the old generation of cars isn't so suited to this generation of cars. So that, that's the interesting question. That's probably one of the things that both Ricardo and McLaren need to ask whether he's a driver who's so tuned in and suited to that old style that probably isn't going to come back you can make it more like that but it's never going to be exactly the same as the high rake you know get the weight forward style cars that that he thrived in no absolutely and this is where there could be an ultimate technical limitation both on the team side but particularly on the driver's side in terms of adaptability maybe the way these cars function there just isn't a way for McLaren to give Ricardo the messages that he most needs to feel comfortable and do his best work. But also, I think it's so early in this uh, new regulation. There have been many drivers, and you mentioned even, uh, Scott mentioned even Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton, you know, having moments this year where they've not been at their best on tracks where you might expect them to be at their best, struggling to kind of get their heads around how much has changed. And they haven't had the kind of stark drop or gap that Ricardo has had, but he's by no means the furthest off his teammate among the the current lineups on the grid in terms of pure qualifying pace averaged across the first 11 races. So it's not disaster zone. Uh, And you just, I think, need a bit more time to see how all of this levels out, you know, as the cars develop they they find the teams find more downforce the cars just get more grip generally maybe everything will come back to ricardo a little bit um so many drivers have been kind of up and down science at ferrari he's arguably the most adaptable of certainly of the newer generation given the number of different teams he's raced for in a short period of time um he's had a big challenge at the start of the season things seem to have calmed down a bit for him towards the summer but still there's a deficit there for him to to make up um so let's just see how the second half of the season develops there like as you say there were some more promising performances for ricardo before kind of you know canada silverstone austria were more difficult so you know if he can just start to kind of chip away mclaren can chip away the car as i say by the time we get to next year you've got a new car coming in more development more understanding uh, a winter to kind of put things together a bit more and without there being that plug in and play absolutely awesome option to just replace him with i still think overall without some very difficult messy contractual situation um, ricardo is the best option mclaren have right now and that's the thing ultimately he's performing okay he's not he's not being terrible he's off norris who we know is a, a very good driver so Whatever happens, they've got an option next year. It might be a bit pricey for what he's doing, but he, he'll do a he'll do a solid job at worst. And there's that tantalising upside because we know how good Ricardo can be. And actually, even though there are legitimate question marks over him, I think everybody who's a 
Formula One fan wants to see drivers at their best because that's when you get the best racing going on. So the hope is that he'll unlock that. He's only 33, could have a long F1 future ahead of him. But yeah, some questions to answer for him and some decisions for McLaren to make. Well, Scott, IndyCar race, Colton Herter had his first F1 test in a 2021 McLaren at Portimao recently. You heard from him during the test, and he's obviously someone whose name gets bandied around as a Ricardo alternative if they do make a change. So how did he get on? Uh, it's difficult to know for certain, partly because McLaren hasn't released any lap times or anything like that. And we also know that the the track and ambient conditions would have been better, uh, would have been different rather than when F1 was there for the Portuguese Grand Prix in Portimao in 2020 and 2021. And obviously the tyre compounds would have been different. So the main things I can really comment on are how McLaren talked about his approach to the test and how he conducted himself during it. The first thing is that I understand that Colton was very, very committed to doing the physical training required to do the test properly. Um, that's something that I've heard separately from uh, you know, McLaren, for example. Um, and uh, from McLaren themselves, were very happy that Colton's physical level was such that he was able to get in and do two days properly I think he did over 160 laps something like that over 700 kilometers so did a did a decent amount of running uh for the first time in a Formula One car and uh seemed to impress the team as well with his attitude through the test um he's got a bit of a reputation of someone who just you know gets a bit too carried away and and can make some mistakes uh Lando Norris joked a couple of months ago that his nickname in Formula Four was Hooligan Herter because he had uh, too many crashes and too many offs. But McLaren said that actually Hurt's attitude towards this, approach towards this was was, was flawless. He, he he made sure to build himself up um, and then he learned how to sort of get to a level where he was taking a few more risks without putting the car, you know, in danger of, uh, of an off. Um, the test would have obviously comprised short runs and long runs and Herter was a bit unhappy with the level of consistency he reached by the end of the second day but said that obviously with a little bit more time in the car he thinks he would have been you know reeling off these laps in a more complete way much further on and I think that's completely fair for him to be at that position when he's own when that was literally his first experience of a Formula One car so uh I mean the only reference we've got for him is when Patricia Award Pato Award uh, McLaren's IndyCar driver drove in Abu Dhabi last year and there were sort of similar noises from McLaren then I get the impression Hurt is a bit more of interest to them from an F1 point of view than O'Ward so I think it's a good first impression from Herter, but it's very much only a first impression if he's going to go anywhere with McLaren let alone F1 I think there's going to need be uh, a fair amount more analysis uh, to do and a few more hurdles put in his way to see um, just how well he copes just to show my age, I was at Donington Park when Brian Herter, Colton's father, had his F1 test for Minardi in August 2002. That was a year old Minardi at the time. So, uh, yeah, his uh, his dad didn't get much further in terms of trying to get into F1. But, but Colton's seen as a realistic possibility. Ben, from what you've seen of Colton Herter, how seriously do you think he should be taken as, as an F1 prospect? Although, obviously, first and foremost, he's got to tick off those super license points before he could get on the grid. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, that's priority number one, isn't it? And and not an easy thing to do either because um, I'm not sure if the FIA have changed it, but it seemed like the, the point system was slightly biased towards European racing at one stage. Certainly there was some 
a lot of tweaking going on. So you've got to qualify. Um, I find it interesting that McLaren are kind of pushing this side of things. That's probably been led by Zach, who's obviously very keen to get McLaren into IndyCar racing. And then once you have a presence there, I guess you have a bit more understanding of the scene out there and the standard of racing, competition, the drivers. Um, McLaren have obviously mined the European single-seater scene quite well. They've, they've got Lando Norris. He's locked down for a long time. They don't really have anyone else, I think, who's a serious contender. Um, their rival teams in F1, particularly the manufacturer back ones, have kind of made bigger plays in recent years in that area. And the talent is spread more thinly around Formula One junior schemes generally. Um, so it's kind of a left field approach, I think, to look stateside. Um, the, the three names connected, obviously, we've mentioned Herter Award, Alex Palau, the, the reigning champion of IndyCar also being mentioned, I mean, he might end up being contracted to three different teams at once, the rate he's going. So if you count uh, McLaren's IndyCar team, uh, Chip Ganassi, and also the F1 team, should that come to pass? But um, He's a one-man Sauber. Yeah, indeed, yeah. <laughs> Maybe Manisha Kaltenbaum is uh, managing that situation as well in the background. Um, let's see how they do as this um, previous car testing program unfolds. Um, obviously, IndyCar is quite different to Formula 1 in spec. Um, if they can show enough turn of speed and the technical capacity driving the older cars, then you know, maybe there's a, a case to push them, them forward. Um, it could be quite difficult for them if McLaren is continuing to go through the kind of difficult moment it's having now um, because can be quite it's obviously a baptism of fire anyway going into formula one but when the team's struggling and expectations are high then that can eat you up pretty quickly um obviously the technical level of indycar is a bit lower than in formula one um the cars are about i think 120 kilos lighter quite a bit less horsepower about 350 brake horsepower less um so how quickly can they adapt and learn the, the intricacies of Formula One. It's the, the case for any new driver coming in. That will be absolutely key. Um, but the technical gap between, say, IndyCar and Formula Two, which would be the conventional route, is not maybe so great. So it's interesting for McLaren to kind of look at this, this different pool. Um, all of those drivers, well, not so much Herter, but Palau and, uh, sorry, not so much Award, but. Um, Plough and Hurt obviously came through the European scene and and went back to America a bit sooner. They've got Formula Three experience, um, which is usually quite key for a driver coming up in terms of technical understanding. So, I think the foundations are there. Um, it's just a question of you know where McLaren sees its future in terms of the driver lineup. What happens with the Ricardo situation? Whether other better or um, you know uh, more solid options emerge in the driver market in future or whether as this testing program unfolds one of these drivers suddenly shows that they've got something really stunning and they just have to be an f1 right now but i guess the word of warning is that making the transition from indycar to formula one tends to be a lot more difficult than going the other way um if we we look back at the last successful one probably sebastian bourdais um, he lasted, what, a season and a half? It was okay in 2008, wasn't he? But by the middle of the following... Qualified success at best. You Qualified be. success, Sorry. yeah. So maybe that's a bit generous. But by the middle of the second year, he was out. I think it was Alga Suari that replaced him, right? In Hungary. 
And then before that, you're going as far back as Juan Pablo Montoya in 2001 and Jacques Villeneuve in 1996. So it's not something that's very easy to do or has been done very often successfully in the history of Formula One. Well, you've set me up beautifully for a couple of bits of promotion there because I can also recommend people listen to Bring Back V10s, one of our sister podcasts, which tells classic F1 stories. The first episode of the sixth season is all about Michael Andretti coming into F1 with McLaren in 93. So he was a, a kart star making uh, the shift. And also, if you want to know a bit more about this bizarre situation with Alex Palau, who does seem to be under contract to Ganassi and McLaren, or at least certainly both teams believe that he is, have listened to the Race IndyCar podcast with Jack Bennion and J.R. Hildebrand as they try to unpick what's going on there but it's a interesting situation you'd have to say there do we have any indication scott of which of these drivers will do the fp1 outings for mclaren um i think this year i would be very surprised if herta isn't in for the u.s grand prix and i think it makes sense for them to then put pato in a week later in mexico um so you have one driver in let's say daniel's car for austin and then one in lando's car for for, for Mexico because there is this rule where you need to have a driver who's not started more than two Grand Prix in uh, each car basically for at some point this year at least two practice sessions this year one one from each car um, designed to give uh, track time on a Grand Prix weekend to, to rookies there's um, there, there are obviously some super license, super license points available to uh, a clean run and certain amount of mileage that you do in an FP1 outing as well. Honestly, Herta needs every point he can get for, for that criteria at the moment, so that'll be that'll be helpful. The reason I think it'll be Herta and Award is because I do think after Abu Dhabi last year, Award would have been promised something uh, extra uh, in the F1 car, and they're a bit hesitant to say whether it'll be part of this TPC program or if it will be an fp1 out in but i think it depends also on how seriously they view herter as an option and exactly because mclaren were going to do obviously a much deeper dive into colton's performance in the test this week so if they think they want to see more of him they might well give him both fp1s but i think it makes sense um i think the only chance you'll see of palau being in a mclaren this year would be in a 2021 car in a private test the um the much uh, raked over and controversial McLaren statement claiming that they have now got Palau for, for 2023 includes a reference to F1 car seat time. And you would seem to imply it's part of the same programme this year that Herter and O'Ward are in because there's no indication that Herter and O'Ward are going to get F1 track time next year. But they're talking about Palau being on the same program as them. So the hint there is that obviously that Palau's going to drive the McLaren F1 car this year while he's still a Ganassi driver and Indy car. So it's a hot mess trying to work out what the hell is going on there. And I, at the moment, I think working out when he's going to get in a McLaren F1 car is probably the least of McLaren's problems at the moment. Yeah, it's uh, certainly a hell of a array of drivers they're picking up from the world of IndyCar into the McLaren fold. So interesting to see what happens with that. One other thing that's going to be quite fun in the second half of this season is there's a lot of teams that still haven't got through any of their FP1 drivers. So we're going to see a lot of random drivers turning up in, in FP1. And of course, it has to be one in each car. So that's going to be an interesting thing to keep an eye on. Uh, well, it's time for our regular look at the races grid rival progress. Grid rival, of course, the fantasy motorsport game that lets you pick your own rotating cast of five drivers and one team in which Scott and myself are doing battle. Any transfer conundrums for you this week, Scott? 
No, uh, because I've, for some reason, locked in my team already and decided that I can't really sort of improve on it without overthinking. So I've gone, uh, I've gone big, I've gone early. Uh, um, I can give you some tips if you wanted, but I'm basically, I'm going to, I'm backing, uh, I'm backing Haas to continue its good run of form. And because uh, Mick and K-Mag are so cheap, I've got both of those guys in. Worked very well for me. Uh, in Austria, so why uh, why shouldn't it continue? Um, I I feel slightly underrepresented on Ferrari, but that's mainly because I think Leclerc's overdue an engine failure. So um, I have a feeling he's not going to finish in France. So I'm betting against him. Well, I've got completely the opposite strategy to you because I've got a completely blank slate of as all of my contracts have expired. So I've got five drivers and a and a team to a point. So I'm going to have some fun with that. Well, you might, or you'll just completely forget to do it and won't have anyone because that's what happened to you a few races ago. Yeah, I've I've learned my lesson. Now I'm going to make sure I uh, I make the most of this opportunity. So it's going to be the usual thing of deciding which of Ferrari and Red Bull to back on this occasion. Well, as mentioned last week and briefly touched on earlier, Scott Oscar Piastri is also a player in this McLaren tapestry. He was seemingly Williams bound not so long ago. He might well still be Williams bound, but where does he stand among these McLaren options? At the moment, I think he's just an option. I don't really think McLaren have uh, I don't think McLaren have got to the point where they're having proper discussions with Alpine. That uh, certainly was the impression I got given in uh, in Austria. But I do think they're open to it and I think Alpine will be open to loaning him there as well, mainly because Alpine have got this slightly awkward Fernando Alonso shaped problem at the moment where Fernando wants to stick around for for 2 years rather than 1. And parking Oscar somewhere for two years is, I don't really think it's what they wanted. I think they wanted to sort of ship him out for a year on loan and then put him in for, for 2024. But I don't think that's going to be an option because obviously it's Alonso. He's a two-time world champion who is performing at a really high level. And however good Oscar is and however much potential he has, can you really say no to Fernando? Because Fernando knows as well that they're probably not going to put a rookie Oscar in the car next year. So it's kind of like, well, it's his choice whether he stays or not. And you kind of have to give him what he wants. So I think Alpine would be quite open to a two-year Piastri deal because that would work nicely for McLaren as well because then it's worth it's then it's then worth McLaren's while taking on a rookie next year and actually spending that time building him up through 2023 because they're at least going to have him for 24. And then depending on what Alpine's doing, depending on what Oscar's contractual situation is there, maybe... McLaren, if they were, if they wanted to, would have a chance of getting Piastri longer term as well. Whereas if it's just a one year cut and shut deal, obviously he he's gone at the end of the year. So um, I think he's uh, I think he's an option. I think he's definitely available. As far from what I was told uh, in Austria, there is no deal, there is no contractual deal at the moment between Alpine and Williams for Piastri services. The Williams was the hot favourite for a long time to land Piastri for for next year at the very least. But there is no contract in place, uh, despite I'm sure there would have been negotiations by this point. I think Piastri's management has been holding out a little bit to see if something else would would come along. And now I think they're probably working quite hard to, to, to go down the McLaren route. But, you know, McLaren does have a few, few other options. I've heard Alex Albon um, linked. Sebastian Vettel keeps being linked as well as another name 
involved. So it's very interesting to see how this Alpine McLaren Williams axis shakes out because someone in that group isn't going to get the driver in their car that they really want for 2023. That's how I'm sort of looking at it. So who ends up where? I think there could be quite a few different combinations actually. It makes it quite fun to 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 pick. Yeah, well, let's let's make Ben pick. Let's say McLaren. <laughs> let, let's to make to make a pleasant scenario. Daniel Ricciardo says, "Actually, I I don't really fancy this. I don't think it's working. So let's come to an agreement. So I'm not driving for you next year. If you were McLaren, which of these options would you be going for, and why?" Well, that's that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Or the the eight million dollar question, maybe. Um, I mean, any team wants the best driver you can get, and. Of the drivers not on the grid at the moment, Piastri is is the number one pick, isn't he? You know, as Scott says, Alpine have kind of got an embarrassment of riches here. Uh, Alonso's probably doing a bit better than maybe they thought he would be doing at his age, uh, and rather than sort of fading away, he's still going strong. So, yeah, I think if you could get Piastri, you would. But the only thing I would temper that with, from McLaren's point of view, is even if it's a two-year deal, do you really want to? train up that driver to then have to give him back to one of your chief rival teams later on uh, because McLaren and Alpine are you know they're boxing in the same circle aren't they whereas you know this Alpine in its previous incarnation as Renault liked to do loan deals with Mercedes but it was much easier to do that because they weren't fighting for the same piece of turf so that complicates matters but if you can get around that and if McLaren can say that yeah we're fine with that um We'll reassess our options then. I think I'd go with Piastri. It'd be a young and exciting lineup to have. I think Vettel, I'm not really sure what he would add um, there. I mean, obviously, he's technically very good. So maybe if they felt that Lando still was slightly deficient in that area or inexperienced, let's say, um, Vettel might be a, a good option in terms of his breadth of experience, um, in terms of identifying things that the team could do better. But I'm I'm not sure that Vettel is is operating at his best anymore. So I would I think if I was McLaren and I had a choice between Albon, Vettel, and Piastri, uh, I'd go with Piastri. You've summed up why it's so difficult for McLaren, really, and why actually they probably quite like Ricardo just to click his fingers and suddenly be there because it would solve a lot of problems. But it, it it's a funny situation, isn't it, Scott? Because although there's an argument for them, let's say they they go through with the, the, the last year. If they are in a position where they think, well, we'll keep Ricardo for one more year, but we're not going to keep him beyond that, then you start to say, well, actually, logically, does it make more sense then to accelerate through one of the other people? So it's it's a strange trade-off, isn't it? If you, It puts McLaren in an odd strategic position driver-wise. There's lots of different paths they can take. Yeah, I think it's all going to come down to... Um... I think what option they're left with on on Daniel's side, um, whether or not they have as much of a, or as broad a range of alternatives as it looks like at the moment. Because I can see a situation where McLaren looks like it's got a load of options on the table and then quickly finds itself running out. You know, I can't imagine Williams doesn't have an option of some kind on Albon, for example, for for twenty twenty three. When you've done that deal with Red Bull for twenty two, why would you why would you not if Surely there must be an option in that contract along the lines of if Red Bull doesn't give him a race seat for 2023, then Williams has first refusal on Albon for, for, for 23. That that has to exist. Um, on the Piastri side, we know that Williams is interested uh, in, in, 
in signing him. We know that the the Alpine has the Alonso thing, but if if they decide that Alonso's you know talking silly money or playing trying to play them, then may, maybe they will just, just just go for it. So you've got that situation there. Vettel and Aston Martin. Aston Martin seems dead keen to keep to keep Vettel, and he's got quite a nice situation there in terms of how much he's uh, expected to do media-wise and promotional days and that kind of thing. He's been able to sort of bend that team around his little finger a little bit, so is he going to want to give that up? And then all of a sudden, you go from McLaren thinking, oh, well, actually, we've got a few options here in F1 to suddenly not having any real good ones at all, certainly not ones that it's got first choice over. And then is it then... Ricardo versus Ricardo for one year, maybe another couple of years, or take a punt on an IndyCar driver after twenty three. I, I think that would be very difficult to 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 decide between. I mean, maybe they'll get to the point where they think it's actually nothing to lose. But yeah, you could have an embarrassment of riches as McLaren, or you could actually find yourself, um, you know, feeding off scraps in the driver market over the next sort of. 12 months or so depending on uh, how it shakes out with other teams because McLaren is theoretically you know the biggest option in the driver market at the moment but that doesn't mean it's necessarily the biggest player other people might have to make decisions before McLaren gets a say and the funny thing is every single alternative candidate we've talked about is under contract to some other racing entity some of them to more than one other racing entity if everybody's to be believed so it does show how complicated it is and even though the McLaren IndyCar team is, is involved. Obviously, that's not an afterthought project for McLaren. That's a, that's a proper team. So they're not going to go compromising that massively in favour of its F1 interests necessarily. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, moving away from driver matters, there's been endless chat about the technical directors tackling the porpoising and bouncing problems, which now all seems set and locked for Spa. But at the recent technical committee meeting, some measures for 2023 have been committed to by the FIA. So, Scott, can you just run through what's changing? I can. Uh, It is basically a combination of minor aerodynamic tweaks and almost, I guess, uh, being a little bit more rigorous with with how they police uh, certain things. So these are... These are viewed as uh, a mix of not short-term measures. Obviously, they they come in next year, but they're going to be a longer-term fix than the stuff we're seeing change in season. So what we're going to have is uh, 
Floor edges raised by 25mm, uh, a raised underfloor diffuser throat, uh, more stringent lateral floor de- deflection tests will be introduced, and there's going to be a more accurate sensor to help quantify the aerodynamic oscillation metric that's been created and will make its debut officially in the Belgian Grand Prix this year. So this is all about um, clamping down on the last remaining potential for trickery around um, flexing floors and how low you try and run your car and and that kind of thing. So it seems to have come about from the FIA having a bit of a longer list of plan changes for next year and then consulting with teams and working out what the best uh, the best package is. It goes on top of the technical directive that I mentioned will be effective as of SPA, which is about uh, ensuring uniform flexibility of the plank and no funny business with skid blocks or anything like that and the debut of this this metric. So it's all part of the FIA's clampdown on porpoising and, and bottoming out. I'm sure there will be some very unhappy teams because the it does seem to be direct meddling in terms of trying to set a limit for how low certain parts of the car are run to the grounds. But ultimately, if it's a safety issue, I don't think any complaining teams are going to have much of a leg to stand on. Oh, I'm sure they'll complain plenty. That's just the way uh, Formula One teams work. So I'm sure there'll be plenty of, of talk about this. But I imagine we will address these in more detail on the Race F1 Tech Show in the coming week with Gary Anderson. So check that out. It's normally released on a Wednesday for more on that. But there was another thing, Ben, that the FI has announced coming out of that technical meeting, which is the resolution to make its roll hoop measures more stringent. Was that always inevitable after the Joe Silverstone crash? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't want to preempt the the outcome of the investigation, um, which the FIA always does when there's a serious accident like this. But everyone's seen the, the dramatic images of of the Alpha rolling over, the roll hoop uh, support structure failing, and then essentially that part of the car and the, the top of the engine cover grinding away on the track and through the gravel. Um, you know, that's something that can't happen again. I mean, fortunately, the halos there as a sort of secondary device in this case and that's prevented what i'm sure would have been a fatal accident if it hadn't been bought in um so you don't want to see roll hoops failing ever really um so it makes sense when you know that's happened to just find ways to to beef up that whole structure uh, and then avoid any unintended consequences of that kind of accident yeah it's interesting to see how they'll approach that they haven't said how they'll do it but there's obviously rules about the the size and the the shape of the structure as well as the crash test those are probably the two areas Salb was one of the few teams perhaps I think it's the only team that's kind of got the single spike version of the of the primary roll structure perfectly legal passed all the tests no problem there so there's no suggestion the team's cut corners in any way it's just the choice they've made we've seen other teams use that in recent years Mercedes had a version of that uh, a few years ago but I would imagine that mandating the the kind of double the triangular or the the double horseshoe i think gary anderson has has called it a uh, structure for the, as the primary role structure would would make some sense and i'm sure they'll look at the load tests as well because it just makes sense for it to be done that way but i think there'll be less argument about this particular regulation change let's let's say that and it's pretty clear there was some form of failure with the primary role structure and the secondary role structure is the halo so uh, that's why you have the the two just to finish off, Scott, we should probably have a brief look ahead to the French Grand Prix. It's always a little bit potluck which of Ferrari and Red Bull are going to be in the strongest position. And I guess that's a positive thing, isn't it? That we are seeing these two doing battle at the front. And although Red Bull had that run of wins, 
Ferrari is having so many self-inflicted wounds. <laughs> it, it, it means it is still, certainly in terms of race wins, all open, isn't it? Yeah, um, especially as as Ferrari has managed to uh, improve in a few other areas. For example, I think they've uh, I think they've chipped away at the deficit they had to to Red Bull in terms of straight line speed, particularly in DRS zones. So I think when you go to a place like Paul Ricard, where you obviously have that very very long fast run down the the, the back straight, primarily to that to the chicane, I think that's going to be a big benefit there. I would have my guess would be that on paper it's a Red Bull track. Um, Red Bull's form was looking pretty ominous early on at Silverstone, um, and I feel like Paul Ricard's a bit more Silverstone in nature than it is Red Bull ring. Um, so my guess would be that Red Bull might have a slight edge, but the Ferrari has been very, very competitive in general. Um, just uh, said earlier, it was a bit tongue in cheek about the reliability, but that is obviously a massive concern. Are they? And I know that they've got fixes coming. Is it going to be as early as this weekend? It's uh, hard to say. But it is. Uh, it is nice that they're this closely matched. Small track characteristics and ambient temperatures can swing it one way or the other. Then it comes down to obviously the job that the driver's doing executing. And what's fun is that Verstappen and Leclerc really do seem to be on a very very high level this season so I'm quite looking forward to the latest instalment and it, um, I think it bodes well that I haven't been able to give a firm answer here as to who is actually really the favourite. That's always a, a promising sign and of course we have France and Hungary back to back to send us into the August break which always makes it interesting and could be the last time at Paul Ricard for a while couldn't it Ben? Yeah yeah big talk that the, the French Grand Prix might might be no more having not really been back for very long either. But I mean, this is all part of Formula One's drive to kind of rotate races and uh, uh, mix up the calendar a bit more. Um, you know, Formula One's never been so popular, it seems, um, with the fan base, but also in terms of people who want a piece of the action and hosting races. Um, so yeah, work to be done there, I think, if uh, if the French Grand Prix wants to save itself. Um, but I mean, in terms of the presence on the grid, you know, there are a number of French drivers, so um, it's a good time there to be a French Grand Prix um, it's just whether they can come to agreement with Formula One to, to prolong its prolong its time on the calendar Yeah it's all about those negotiations going on in the background and Paul Ricard fair to say it's perhaps not the favourite venue on the calendar of, uh, of anyone but it can produce some uh, some interesting racing even though it's been a little bit unfortunate with the way things have gone since it came back onto the calendar. Uh, well, thanks very much to Scott and Ben for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's loads to read there. And also take a look at our YouTube channel and our many other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories and has just started its sixth season. We'll now turn our attention to Paul Ricard, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the French Grand Prix. The Athletic.